Robert Gowan, sitting at 15 Perry Street, mentors for military, and I'm sitting here with my sidekick for this week. How are you guys doing, it's Kyle? And um, Kyle, as you guys know, if you haven't listened to his episode, you can roll it on back and you can find Kyle Neal somewhere in there. And actually, I think you were on twice, so yeah. you'll be able to hear that. Um, so Kyle's filling in and helping me uh, run the show. And if you guys are looking at supporting the podcast, make sure you go out there, um, like us on all of our social media, mentors the number four MIL, uh, support us through Patreon, all those kind of good things. And we're sitting here with our guest for this show, which is Janae Sergio, and she's wrote a book here. And for those who are looking at it on the camera, it's Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless uh, to Hero, which is kind of giving a little bit away of what we're going to talk about. But um, it is a book that you can go out there and buy, a best-selling author. And so welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, where was it that home is San Antonio? And is that like, what, but what's the original home? Let's go back to that. Original home, I'm from San Bernardino, California. And um, the, the homeless part was actually Hollywood, California. So I'm a Southern California girl. Okay, uh, so born there. Yes. Okay, and so let's start off in the very beginning. And um, you, when you grew up and you were born and stuff, had both parents, one parent, how did that end up working out? Because there's a story to this that happens. Yes, so I actually never met my father. I grew up, is this good? Yeah. Okay, I never met my father. <laughs> I grew up to a single mom. She had three daughters by the time she was age 22, um, three different fathers, and uh, grew, grew up in San Bernardino kind of with my mom and uh, her various men that were in and out of our life, um, and I, I never met my dad, and so just kind of tough childhood um, with my two sisters and my mom, moving around a lot, a lot of different men. Uh, and people in and out of our lives. So how, what was the age difference again between the do, uh, the sisters and you? My sisters and I are about two years apart each. Okay. Um, so it's kind of one right after the other and all three different fathers. So my older sister n met her father a little bit later in my life or in her life. Um, and we actually lived with my younger sister's father for uh, uh, up until I was about five or six years old. He was extremely abusive. Um, and it was a, a really scary life for us. Um, I remember there were instances when I was, uh, you know, five years old, five, six years old, seeing him with, you know, a knife to my mom's throat, threatening mm -hmm. to kill her. And um, we had bars on the windows, so we had no way to escape. So it was just very violent and very um, abusive situation. Golly, that's got to be like, like mm -hmm. major at that age. It was really tough, and um, she ended up getting out of that relationship right into another domestic violent relationship, and the, the next one that she got into, um, I didn't realize it at the time, uh, and I really looked up to my stepdad, but he was uh, kind of, it was kind of a molestation type thing, you know, not with like penetration, but he would do some things that now as an adult i realized he had a perverted mind and he very was, inappropriate mm -hmm, yeah. he was taking advantage of the fact that she had these three young girls and she was a single mom and mm -hmm. he was able to get us in the home and he was ext extremely abusive to my mom and to my sisters and i as well oh my god that, yeah. that like makes me sick so what age were you at that time frame and your sisters so when we got to well she she actually went from one to the next and in a lot of the cases with the men it was overlapping um, and but this so particular... Um, the stepdad, yeah. uh, that was probably um, 
I would say about six until I was eight or nine. <sighs> yeah. Wow. And then um, we we kind of kept in touch with him throughout the years. He ended up passing away young. Um, but we kept in touch with him throughout the years because, like I said, we didn't, to us, that was like the only dad we knew. Yeah. And so it wasn't until I got older that I realized what had been happening, especially when I became a mom of daughters myself. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I don't know why I looked up to him so much. You know, I don't know why I called him my dad. He was actually very abusive to us, and he did some really disgusting things to us and to my mom. So um, it was really, he was an alcoholic and he ended up passing away in his early 30s from cirrhosis of the liver. Wow. Did you end up going to multiple schools then? So was it this one of these things where you might be going to a school and then you switch right mid-year or even multiple schools type of thing? And Absolutely. We, we spent a lot of time changing from schools. We had moved from city to city, um, different homes, motels, a uh, lot of sleeping on other people's couches. For much of the time, my mom was a bartender, and so a lot of the people that she met were in the bar. And so, you know, when she would be break up with one of her boyfriends or have a fight with one of her boyfriends, we'd move to somebody's couch or their basement um, and just living in different places. And so it was tough to build relationships at school. It was tough to do well in school. But I was my mom was also very abusive. And so with the abuse that I was enduring, um, school was my outlet, and so I was actually a straight-A student. I did very well in school wherever I was because that's, that was my outlet. That's where I felt like I was validated, I think, as a child. And so, um, but yeah, I could probably name off about 10 schools that I went to. Oh, wow. So um, abusive in the sense of physical abuse and mental, both, I'm assuming? Yes, and neglect as well. Wow. So she worked more like late nights, would leave you guys alone, that type of thing as well. Yeah, she worked at night. She would leave us alone and she would also party a lot. But for the most part, work at night um, in the middle of the night, leave us home alone. She would actually lock up the necessities and so kind of ration them for us. And so while she Necessities like food, water. Towels, toilet paper. No, even that. Toilet paper, yeah. That actually, you know, became a big issue when I finally got of age to kind of speak up for us. That was one of the uh, catalysts to me ending up on the streets. Um, uh, My older sister took care of us most of our life. I mean, she was about 10 years old. She was already responsible for us, and she was the one making sure we had the food that we needed, the necessities that we needed. While my mom was at work, we would have people coming and going from the house, a lot of teenagers, you know, partying, drinking the alcohol that was in the house. Um, But when I, around the time I got 14, my older sister actually moved out. And so then I kind of became the one who was taking care of us and making sure, but I didn't have the same level of respect or authority that my older sister had because I was more of the scapegoat. And so, it was it was more challenging for me and so she would lock up she had uh two closets that were locked up one of them had food uh like uh perishable food non-perishable food so like chips and stuff like that um and then she had a closet that was locked up with uh toilet paper and towels and those type of necessities and then she had a deep freezer in the garage that was locked up with the actual food food. Holy cow. Yes. I mean, so when you say locked up, are you talking about like deadbolt or are you yes. talking about, so you couldn't like use a, a card or something like that to pop these things open? Or? We learned at a young age how to pick locks. <laughs> oh, wow. 
um, you know, it's a survival thing. And so we would learn how to pick locks and we learned how to open a bag of chips and then seal it back up with the lighter. And um, she had a courier cabinet. Uh, that was when computers just started coming out. So, you know, like the old AOL days. Mm -hmm. So she had a cabinet that the computer was in. So we learned how to actually, it was plywood in the back. So we just learned how to pull that off, reach in, unlock it. While she was gone, we could get on the computer. And then when she would get come back home, we'd hurry up and put everything back the way it was. Um, she would lock up the cable to the television, the cable to the phone. I mean, everything, everything was locked up. And her bedroom was locked, and so we learned how to break into her room to get some of the stuff we needed. But it was necessities that we we had to find a way to get it, get it, or else you know we would go without. So it was it was tough for a while there. Well, so what would she do like when she did go to work? Um, you know. Did she prepare dinner or something like that ahead of time? Or oh, you, no. <laughs> okay. So how did you guys fend for yourself? Just like that. I mean, tortillas with butter and sugar or, um, you know, baked potatoes. Or we, we would just find ways to make things. Uh, top ramen, whatever we could find. There would be, you know, in, in some cases, neighbors who would bring us food or... Um, so other people knew this. Yeah. Yes. People knew... And that's where I talk a lot about, um, you know, you, you kind of wait in life for someone to come in and rescue you or you get like there were times where I felt like, uh, how did these people know? And they didn't do anything. And I would get almost resentful to those people like you were there. You knew you had to. Have, I, I remember seeing her talk about she would brag about the physical abuse like she would, you know, explain why she did it and she would brag about it like it was like. I don't know why she thought that was something to brag about. And I felt resentful to those people for not saving us. But then as an adult, you realize that it's not that easy to step in. It's not. And so there's there's the law and there's um, she was really good at manipulating situations. So we would have people in our lives for a very short amount of time because as soon as they caught on to what was happening and they tried to speak up on our behalf, she would find some... Uh, way to push them out and even scare them out of our lives, you know, making threats or accusations against them. And so they were so afraid and they went into self-preservation mode and they wow. just would not interfere. <clears throat> Holy cow. So what was her childhood like? Probably similar or worse. Yeah. Um, my, she, she had, uh, she grew up in a, a home with a stepfather who was actually abusive uh, and um, both sexually and physically. Her parents were both alcoholics. Um, her actual older brother was also uh, abusing her and her sister mm -hmm. uh, sexually, uh, allegedly. Um, so she, my older, my, my aunt ended up actually having to leave the home at a young age because of a relationship between her and the stepdad that had started when she was about six years old, I believe. And um, I think she thought as a teenager, you know, that she was in love with him uh, because it was grooming more so, you yeah. know. And so when she left the home, my mom actually became the subject of the abuse. There was alcoholism, and so my, my mom became the subject of the abuse. So I believe by the age of 15 or 16, my mom was also pushed out of the home. I believe she, from what I understand, she was kind of the same as I was, the scapegoat for the family. And so she was pushed out of the home. She ended up getting pregnant with my older sister at about 16. She tried to go back home, and they wouldn't let her. 
And so she had to find her own way. Um, I believe that she kind of developed more of a victim mindset. Mm. And she kind of, um, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you you seek attention some way or somewhere. And I think hers was more of a negative attention that she thrived on. Yeah. Bad boy. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you you see or hear these types of patterns a lot. And I know in my own situation, you know, with my father, I I started learning more about why it was the way he was. And it turns out that he had, you know, I always heard these stories like, you know, they made him um, eat off of a newspaper and not at the table and, you know, basically outside with the cat and the dog and, you know, different things like that, that um, because he was born... Um, his mother passed away giving birth to him. So I think it was a resentful thing as well to his father of, I'd rather have my wife and instead I have a son. You know, when I already have kids that were, actually some of his uh, siblings were old enough to be his parents. And so they, he was the baby baby, you know, something that wasn't expected. And then because it wasn't expected and it didn't turn out the way it was supposed to, I think it compounded the situation. Not to mention my grandfather married um, my dad's, um, or his mother's sister. So in other words, you know, it was like the old time thing, you know, you marry the brother or the sister, you know, whatever your sex is and stuff, you marry the, the, um, the sibling of the person that you were married to if they're unmarried, Yeah. you know? And so that's the same thing that happened. Well, of course she resented the fact that, you know, so it was just all this resentment and you don't realize, I guess when I'm building all this up and trying to show in your story too, that you don't realize the secondary and, and, you know, third and fourth effects of what you do on a daily basis. Yeah. I like growing up, I always was like, what's wrong with me? Like, why is it me? Why am I the one who had to deal with it? And I, as I got older and especially through the process of writing my book, I started to learn that essentially what she was doing was she was trying, it was almost like she saw me as her, like she was making me relive her childhood. And so a lot of the things she said to me were kind of projection. And it, was, it, it didn't align with my character and it didn't align with the kind of person I was, but it was almost like she was trying to push me into becoming whatever it was that she had been when she was younger. Mm. And she did treat me differently than my sisters. And so... Why so? We're still trying to figure that out. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't, when I talk to like her siblings and to people who knew her, who were adults in our lives when I was a child, they all think that she saw herself in me and that she was just trying to make me relive kind of what she had lived. Um, I still wonder if there was something in the relationship with my father that made her hate me differently. Maybe Mm. because with my older sister, that was kind of her first love, you know? And with my younger sister, she stayed with him for several years. But my father, it was a very brief situation and there may actually be more to that story that I don't, I'm still trying to figure out. Um, It may, I've been told that there's even a possibility that I'm a result of assault. And so mm. there's got to be some kind of resentment. I just can't get that out of How her. deep do you want to search this? So there was a show that um, was on television. I think it was Lifetime or something like that that my wife and I used to watch frequently that was around um, people who were trying to find their father or their, their mother or both. And, um, and then when they found the information out, in some cases it wasn't what they thought or the person wasn't willing to accept them. And especially if it became like that type of traumatic event that you're describing there, mm-hmm. 
it, now you, now you approach something, but when the reality hits, mm-hmm. are you prepared for what you're about to hear? I'm almost numb to it at this point in my life. Yeah. Um, not much shocks me anymore. When I first heard, I, I heard about the potential of me being a result of that, of, of rape, um, as I was writing the book. And I don't know if that is something that she had said to get attention from to an ex-boyfriend or if that is true. Um, so I don't have a I don't have a relationship with her. I don't know how to find out if that's true or not. Um, but when I heard it, it hit me at first. It was kind of almost like that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it hurt to hear. I cried, um, but at the same time, I'm just not shocked anymore. I'm just not surprised anymore, and it might actually make me feel a little bit, I don't want to say better, because I wouldn't want that for her, but it might make me feel a little bit less confused about why she didn't love me like she did my sisters. So I, I, don't, I wouldn't mind learning about it, but I just don't have the relationship with her to find out if that's true or not. Wow. That's deep, Janae. I yeah. mean, seriously, this is like we're on like minute twelve of this podcast. This is, actually, I mean, right? this is the first time I've said that out loud. Well, well, thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, yeah, I almost wrote it in the book, but because I had learned it as I was in the process of writing the book, and I couldn't get that information out of anyone, uh, I was like, you know, maybe it's just best I don't talk about it. But when I found that out, I was like, whoa. I don't know if this is like I don't even know where to go with this. I was going to ask you: Is your mother still living? So you just answered that question that yes, she is, but you just don't have a relationship. Is it that you also don't know where she's at? And I know where she is. Okay. Yeah, I tried throughout life. I always tried to win her love and to win her acceptance, but I would have had to have just morphed and silenced myself to do it. And so I was actually off and on in touch with her up until about five years ago um and it was really when i started publicly sharing my story is when i started getting a lot more um pushback from her and my sisters and and they were a lot less accepting of me in their life and i was almost begging them to have a relationship with me um and so a few years ago we went out we tried to see them and things didn't go very well and i saw that it was affecting my daughters yeah and i said okay in order for this toxicity not to be pushed onto my children in order to truly break the chains of dysfunction i have to distance myself for you to have the wherewithal to think that way having gone through what you've just described and like you said 12 15 (laughs) minutes of conversation that's pretty amazing in itself i mean that means a lot thank you no i fully mean it because i'm sitting here listening to it and and there are going to be, you know, there are probably going to be some people that listen to this podcast that are going to be a relate in, in different factions of what you just described. Mm-hmm. You know, the abusive parents or the even the sexually abused or partially, you know, in that sense, or, um, you know, growing up in, a, in an unhealthy environment that's very similar in a poor um, town or in a, you know, maybe not to the extreme, maybe more to the extreme of what you just described. And, you know, again, I'm amazed by the people who come on this show and then after that seem to come out of that shadow. We're not even done with the podcast. Yeah. I'm already saying this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Thank you. Tonight. It means a lot. Thank you. I, I saw a quote, I think, on social media the other day, and it says, 
uh, there comes a point in your life where you realize that aunt or uncle that why they distance themselves from the family. You know, yeah. that aunt or uncle. I had an uncle that distanced himself himself from our family and I was resentful because my cousin and I are about two weeks apart and we were very close. And it was around the time that she was, my mom was married to my stepdad, the one that was abusive to us, that my uncle just disappeared. He moved to another state and completely distanced himself from the family. And I was so upset by it. He started a whole new family. It was a healthy family. We didn't have that. And so over the years, I've struggled to really build a relationship back with him now that we have that capability through social media. As I was writing the book, I reached out to him because I needed that answer about the assault. I was the only person I could think of to talk to because they were very close. And so I reached out to him to try to see if I could get it from him. And he struggled to answer it. Um, but he did explain to me what I just told you about my mom's childhood and how he had to distance himself in order to give his children that healthy life. And I realized that now I'm him. Yeah. I'm him and I don't I have I have a niece and nephews that I don't get a no. And it hurts. It's hard because I want my daughters to have that relationship with them, but I can't. I have to give my daughters what what I didn't have. Safety. You know, um I don't have a box of tissues or anything in there, but um I, I um I think what you're describing though is that we want this um this healthy lifestyle that we see portrayed back in the day more so on television than it is sometimes portrayed falsely on social media that makes us seem like, well, why don't I have, you know, the, the leave it to beaver is what mm -hmm. it used to be called family environment where everybody is in a happy go lucky and, you know, everybody has their roles and, you know, the kids listen and mind the parents. And when they do slip up, there's this whole discipline. That's nice that, you know, yeah. that's not reality. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not the reality. So, um, I can, you're going into, you know, mommy bear uh, mode. You're going to, you're pulling into hibernation and protection mode to make sure that you protect them. But you're also, I would imagine, and you can answer this as to whether or not you're also trying not to do so much that it affects them by you pulling too tightly. Yes. Because then you can have a reverse effect. Yes, and my daughters actually will tell me that sometimes because I'm transparent with them about my childhood and I'm transparent with them about why I'm so overprotective. And they will actually call me out. Now they're older and they'll say, Mom, I need to go to the mall with my friends and it's going to be okay. My daughter actually gave me a hard time about it the other day because um, I was talking about trafficking with her, you know, and I'm kind of mm -hmm. like, and I'm like, you know, and it could even be your friends who, you know, <laughs> and, and they could take you and introduce you. She goes, mom. And I said, all you want in life is just mommy. Mommy's here. I'll protect you. She's <laughs> like, mom, you need to like, let me have friends. Yeah. And so they get on me about it, but they understand why. And so, um, and they appreciate, they appreciate my protectiveness, but they do. They call me out on it and they'll say, Mom, you're being too protective now. You have to let me make some decisions and, and make some mistakes as well. Well, that's and good because you set your healthy boundaries and now they're kind of defining their own healthy boundaries with you. Yes, and, and they feel safe to do that. That's that's perfect. That's the dream, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think at their age, what's the oldest? 15. No. Do you think they fully understand the brevity of what we're describing here, though? I think my youngest doesn't. Um, I think my oldest is really getting there. Yeah. Um, I she didn't really fully understand. She's read some of the book, and actually, she's read most of the book. And so I think she's learning a lot. Um, and so even just leading up to coming out here, we had some conversations like about trafficking, and she understood about sex trafficking, but she didn't understand what it really meant. And so I had to go into some details with her. Yeah. And she was like, "Mom, I didn't understand 
that that's what it meant. I didn't understand how detailed it, like those, what that kind of, what it, what it is. Um, and so she's getting to the point where she is starting to really understand and she can see the dynamic and why I'm so protective, but at the same time, she's strong enough to be able to push back a little bit and ask me to let her live her life. My youngest is, is still, you know, mommy's my world and whatever mommy says goes. And yeah. so we're okay there. She's very tough though. I'm gonna have a tough time with that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know, we can go down and do a whole nother podcast on sex trafficking, which I've actually, you know, we've done multiple shows on that topic. And, and I think it is a hard conversation to have with your children because everybody wants to assume that the bubble that they live in, oh, this is not going to happen to me, but that's exactly when it does happen because you're not prepared for those types of things. And when you start getting into it, it's not as it's sometimes described on television or anything. It could be somebody that, you know, um, that it, and you think you know well that's a, a young man or something of that nature whose job is to kind of more or less be the mule to be the individual who actually introduces that situation and you're un, you don't have any idea you think you're going to the movies you're going to stop off at his friends because he's got to pick up something and the next thing you know when you go inside it happens and it's over yeah. you know that's exactly what i was telling my daughter the other day about the mule and i was like it could even be a female friend it can who and she was like you know but they wouldn't do that and i said well sometimes they don't have a choice yeah and, that's you right know, and or I they told, don't know they're doing it or they don't know they're doing it yeah i was telling her about the girl when i was living in the shelter I, there was a mule that tried to, to lure me in and i was like it wasn't she didn't have a choice. Like she wasn't doing it because she wanted to, she was doing it because she had to. Yeah. And what happens is with these, you know, the, the traffickers is, is, you know, once a girl is kind of no, no longer of value to them, they're used up or they're so far into drug addiction, they need a new one. And so they'll use that person to lure in the next. And so that's what I was kind of explaining to her. And that's why I was like, you don't need friends either. Mommy, just mommy. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is a scary world. And at times it was funny cause I was having a conversation about this with my daughter that, um, just this morning, as a matter of fact, that, you know, you want to believe that the world was just scary before, but social media made it to where it's in the forefront. You know, it's, it's, that's the case, but the reality is it was that way, but it, it almost seems like social media and those types of things have also maybe created, um, what used to be on a scale of one to 10, a two, and now it's gone to eight mm-hmm. because it's heightened the level, um, uh, because the ability or the access is yeah, actually there. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, and, and especially during the pandemic, um, a lot of kids moved to being online. And so these predators were able to find their way in and, and they find their way into where the kids are. They don't go where the adults are. They're not on Facebook. They're on discord. They're on Roblox. They're on TikTok, Snapchat, that's where they're at. And parents are not familiarizing themselves with these platforms. And so they're not knowing what to look for. And it's not really into, and and what happens with children who are being groomed or lured is the, the, they're being manipulated in a way that they start to change slowly. And so the parents think that's just them evolving into this different person. That's just how they're evolving in life. And then they start to kind of, you know, act out and have problems with their parents. And so when they disappear, it almost seems like they disappeared because they were having issues at home or they disappeared because they suddenly became a troubled child. But no, they were being groomed into that all along. Mm -hmm. And when they disappear, people don't tend to look as hard for them because they think, oh, they just ran away. Yeah. But they were they just they went to go meet somebody and they got taken and they thought they were meeting someone their age or you know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. they were groomed mm-hmm. into that and but because it's happening online, 
you can't if it's happening in person you can look around and you can kind of get a gauge as a parent right like this person's at a little too close to my child they're spending a little too much time with them but when it's happening online you have no idea who's talking to your children you have no idea who has access to your children and so it's important that parents take the time to learn these platforms that your kids are on and understand how the groomers are using these platforms to lure our children and be on them mm -hmm. you know how old were you when your mother the event that we really cover within the book and stuff where you're you're taken um to a homeless shelter so what what led to that event so this is where uh as i started i turned around 14 years old my mom started taking us to church for a little while and at the church was when I started to see that our life was different from everyone else's. You know, prior to that, most of the people we were around had uh, similar situations and similar lifestyles. Yeah. And to us, that, so that the abuse, all of the stuff we were enduring was normal because the other kids are in our life were dealing with that as well. But when I started going to church, I was getting exposed to kids who had a little bit more normalcy in their life. And so I started to realize that ours was not normal. Yeah. And I, I would get the courage to speak up at 14, 15 years old. Um, when I was 14, my mom, uh, there was one night where I decided to write a letter to her and tell her uh, she had been at work all night and we didn't have any toilet paper. And so we had to go to the next door neighbor and ask for toilet paper. So I was embarrassed. I was really embarrassed by it because we had toilet paper in the house, we just couldn't get to it. So I wrote her a long note. I had the courage to write this note. And I go to bed and my, my, the routine was that in the middle of the night when my mom would get home from work, I would wake up. I could hear the garage and I would wake up and I would go into survival mode and lay there and wait for my beating. I was used to getting beat in the middle of the night when she would get home from Are work. Are you kidding me? And it was bad. I mean, how, how old were you? Wait. Uh, 14, 14 years old. 13, 14 years old. So she was working as a bartender, and in the middle of the night, she would come home, and the garage door was right next to my bedroom door. So you knew then that I was going to get beat in the middle of the night. So she would come home, and I have like this instinct. Like I can actually tell when a car is near. Like I've I've developed this instinct to be able to tell when there's a car pulling up to the house. So she would pull up. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and I would just lay there and wait. And I would kind of listen. Like, does she have somebody with her? Does she sound like she's in a good mood or a bad mood? And just wait to see if she was going to burst in the room and and rip me out and start beating me. And so that became that was kind of the norm at the time. And um, so this night, I and then I would have to go back to bed and wake up in the morning a couple hours later and go to school and act like nothing had happened. So this was a tough childhood, tough part of my childhood. So. I write a letter to her, a long letter saying, you know, you treat us like prisoners, you lock everything up, this is not the way that we should be living, and I go to bed and I lay awake and I wait for the beating, because I know, like, this one's definite. I mean, if the sponge, you know, not being rinsed off is a reason for her to beat me, she's sure as heck going to beat me for this letter. Um, she didn't. That night, she did not. And so I laid there in fear the whole night, waiting for my beating. I didn't get it. Um, the next morning I wake up, the letter's still sitting where I left it, so she must not have read it. So I had an opportunity to take it away, and for some reason I chose to leave it there and go to school. And sure enough, school lets out, and there's my mom standing at the gate waiting for me. Not and typical. Not typical. Oh, ever. Yeah. Like, I don't think she ever picked me up from school. Um, and this was going to be a walk home because I would walk home from school. So uh, she actually beat me in front of everybody the entire way home from school, walking in front of people, which is beating me like you think you're a tough. And 
So we get to the house and um, like we have bunk beds. And so I sit on the bottom bunk and she's beating me. And um, I, for the first time in my life, I'm a very empathetic person. I was always one who would go into the fetal position. I never talked back. I never fought back. I was, I was that kid that was just always scared. For the first time in my life, I just cocked my fist back and I was like, you will never hit me again. And I've got like blood dripping down my face because she wore a lot of rings. And so when she would punch me, punch me close fist in the face, um, it would leave marks on my face. And so I'm sitting there like with my fist cocked back, like bigger than my mom, she's small, and she just stops like in shock. And we're both sitting there and it's almost like a divine intervention, all of a sudden the doorbell rings. And she goes to the door and it's two of my friends from church. I think they got word that I was getting beat on the way home and they stopped to see if I was okay. So I'm sitting in the bed shaking, not sure what's about to happen. And she lets me go out there and talk to them with the blood on my face after I had just gotten beat. And she goes in her room and she's like, go, oh, just go, do whatever you want. I don't even care anymore. So I go outside and I start talking to my friends, telling them what had happened and we're naive and we came up with this plan. Um, you know, we're gonna pick you up in the morning and we're gonna go get you emancipated and you're gonna you know, start your new life. And uh, so we tried that. So the next day I get, um, I pack my bag, but I put, instead of putting my books in it, I put my clothes in it and I go to walk to school like I normally would and they come and they pick me up. And they take me, because we were so, this was my church friends. So they take me to, uh, to the church family and the pastor of the church actually gets involved. He contacts CPS and CPS says, okay, we've made a report. You don't have to take her back home because there's an official report on file. Um, she's safe to go to church tonight and stay with you guys while we investigate the situation. So I go to church. And my mom knew that like, there, I wasn't gonna miss church for anything. And so she knew she was gonna find me there that night. So she shows up to the church with the police and um, somehow they weren't able to find this CPS. Oh, it just went mysteriously oh, wow. disappeared. Yeah, it just oh. disappeared. And so here I am in the church feeling safe, protected, and the cops are out there arguing with the pastor of the church. And um, the pastor comes in and he gets me and you know he's crushed. You could tell he's just crushed. He, he knew, he felt like he failed me. You know, like if I had known this would have happened, we wouldn't have had her sitting in this church. We would have had her hidden away somewhere because they knew the abuse. They knew the level of abuse. I was actually dating his son. So they knew more than anyone what was going on. Yeah. And so he comes in and he says, we're gonna do something that I normally wouldn't tell someone to do, but we're gonna lie. And he was like, you're gonna tell the cops that if he, they take you home, you're gonna kill yourself. And that's the only way we can save you from going home tonight because they'll take you to a hospital instead. And so we did that. So I go there and I say, if you take me home, I'll kill myself. My mom's outside laughing, just laughing and joking with the cops. And she thinks it's funny. And she's like, she'll never do that. You know, kind of like joking about it. They put me in the back of the cop car and they take me to a mental hospital. Um, so strip me down, you know, check everything, and they put me in a in a room um, in the mental hospital. And um, overnight, I spent the night there. The next day, they returned me to my mom, sent me back home with her. Um, a cop escorted us home back to her house, and so I'm trying to tell the cop, you know, all the things that are going on. And I remember laying in the bed and listening to my mom and the police officer talk, like right at the door and laughing and joking and she's basically won him over and i hear him say if she was my daughter i would beat her too the cop the police officer who i thought wow. was going to protect me mm -hmm. 
So after that, there was kind of a series of my mom sending me to live with people. Um, she sent me to live with her sister for a little while. Um, when she sent me to live with her sister, her older sister, this is the one that had gotten pushed out of the home. And so they had kind of a, a dysfunctional relationship. Mm -hmm. But my aunt was an, uh, an Air Force, a retired Air Force, um, I think she was like an E8 or E9. And so my aunt said, send her to me, I'll whip her into shape. You know, I'll take care of her. I'll, I'll, I'll get her. Like as if that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so but the, did the aunt, so the aunt only saw the perspective of your mom. I don't even know if that was the case. Okay. I don't know if she said that just to get me out of the home. Okay, okay. Because okay. I didn't live that kind of life when I got with her. It was a dream. Okay. <laughs> I felt so safe. She was a, wonderful to me. She treated me like it was, it was amazing. And um, I had a good life with her. You know, it was healthy. She let me uh, explore my artistic talents. She took me to get my hair done. You know, I lived more of a normal life with my aunt. And but for some reason, my mom thought that I was going to live like a worse life. You know, mm. she's going to be military on you, and you're going to hate it. And so I lived with my aunt for a while because they had a contentious relationship. Uh, like there would be times where my aunt would refer to my mom as my sister, and so there was some some weirdness there where I think even at times she saw me as my mom. Mm. I don't know, it was, it was very odd, but she, she was really good to me. And um, my mom found out that I was actually having a good experience there and not a bad one. And so guess what? She shows up with the cops to pick me up. And my aunt didn't want me to go back home. And so she's out there pleading with the police. My mom, again, is laughing and joking with the cops. And she almost sounded like she might've been either drunk or high. Um, and so my aunt asked the cops, we cannot send her home. It's not safe for her. What can we do? Like, is there anything we can do to not send her back home? Because I'm afraid for her if she goes back. And they said, the only way is if when we go inside, she's not there. So it's like eight o'clock at night, pitch black. Uh, my aunt lives on a, uh, it's like Laguna Niguel. So it's like a mountaintop kind of hill and um, in a condo. And so in the front of the condo, it's like on one level of the street, and then the back of the condo is like another level. And so she comes inside and she tells me what the cops said, and she said, run, just run. We'll come find you. So here I am, like 15 years old, barefoot, shorts and a tank top. And I run, just from the police, from my mom, from everybody. And I run down the mountain and just, I don't even know how, how I did it. Um, and I come, I find a lit uh, shopping center. And so I'm like, run into the shopping center and I see a, um, a Kinko's and they had a huge potted plant. And so I go and I just hide behind the potted plant. I'm barefoot and I'm just hiding behind this huge plant. And um, the cops are there and they're out there with their spotlight. And they actually put the spotlight on me and the cop made eye contact with me. And he looked away and they left. And so like, wow. that was an instant where, you know, you hear about police officers who do, do wrong. You know, my mom was actually dating one who was abusive. Um, but this was one where I felt like they protected me. They knew because they had seen her behavior. They didn't want me going home. Looked at me in the eyes and just drove away. And so, um, I was able to get a hold of my aunt and they sent someone down to pick me up and they moved me to an, um, my aunt's girlfriend's house. She was a lesbian and so they moved me to her house and I lived there for a little while. Um, after that, you know, while I was living there, 
it just got to the point where they couldn't get me into school and I was just sitting at the house all day and nobody knew what to do with me. Like I was in hiding. And so they were able to get in touch with a friend of mine's family and get me moved back to my hometown where I could at least go back to the school that I was enrolled in. Um, my mom knew that I was there and she was allowing me to stay there for a while, but she was making it hard for them. She wouldn't turn over the rights and she wouldn't allow them to do, you know, to, to have some of the, the parental rights that they needed. And so I ended up getting sent back to her house. Um, so after I ended up back at my mom's house, again, she never put her hands on me again. That one instance where I, I cocked my fist back, that was the last time my mom has ever put her hands on me. When I got back to her house, though, um, it was tough living there, and uh, I felt in fear. I didn't know what would happen. Um, so I ended up, me and my little sister got in a fight, and my sister called my mom and was you know, kind of crying to her, saying we got in a fight. And my mom said something along the lines of like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat your ass when, when I get home. And I got scared and I ran away again. And so this time when I ran away, I didn't have anyone to go to. Everyone had been pushed out of our life. All these people that had tried to help were pushed out. I had no one left, so I found some- Pushed out or did they, they choose to? Yeah, did they set a boundary? Yeah. Uh, they set boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pushed out in that, you know, like the church was afraid. She, I, I think yeah. there were some threats made against the church that if you guys keep intervening, I'm going to make these threats. Um, all the people who had tried to be there were, they had to preserve themselves. Yeah. Now, for me, I felt failed, right? Because I was young and I needed these people and I looked to them. And so I didn't understand those boundaries. I just knew that all these adults that I thought were gonna protect me and help me just keep disappearing. Yeah. You know? So I just kept feeling abandoned one after the next, after the next. And so now here we are, I, I run away, uh, I don't have anywhere to go. I end up, you know, kind of just couch surfing with high school friends. Nobody that truly cared about me, not anyone that loved me, you know? And uh, end up at a, um, a house party and like, I was, I was very strong in my faith. I, I didn't typically do anything. Like I wasn't, I was absolutely not sexually active. I didn't drink or do drugs or anything like that. Um, so I ended up at this house party and everybody's drinking and I decided to, to drink. And um, I ended up being date raped that night by a classmate. And that was my first sexual experience. So. Wow. Yeah, I, it was kind of almost like, I don't want to say blackout drunk because I remember the details and so I wasn't blacked out, but I wasn't able to physically defend myself. And I pushed him off of me several times, but I wasn't strong enough to keep him off of me. And so the next day I ended up going and telling you know an acquaintance or a friend what had happened and we got to call your mom, you know, we have to call your mom. That's all we can do. And so like any teenager, even though I was enduring abuse, even though I didn't trust my mom, like this is a moment where I need my mom. And so we get, go back to my mom and I go back home and, uh, you know, they do the rape kit, they file a police report. Um, and I remember laying on my mom's lap crying and she's, she's there and she says, are you happy now? You're just another statistic. And then she ends up arranging to drop me off at the homeless shelter. And um, 
after she dropped me off, she, you know, dropped the charges against the, the guy who had raped me because she just, I guess she didn't want to believe that it happened or she didn't want to deal with it or maybe she just didn't want people probing into her own life. But um, that's what resulted in me being dropped off. Do you... There's a lot to unpack there. Um, do, you, do you think that she, like you said, you said earlier, she saw a lot in, of her in you. Do you think that at that moment she realized um, her worst fear in a way, in some ways? It's almost like she, it wasn't like she held you up on a, you know, in, in a special way or whatever, I guess is what I'm saying. But also at the same token, you are a daughter. Um, she sees herself in you and then you know, same thing happens, very similar thing happens. And, and now she's thinking, okay, well, you know, for her, she's probably thinking yet another thing that I have to deal with, not you, yeah. not dealing what you're dealing with, but another thing I have, are you happy now? Now yeah. I got to deal with that, you know? Yep. I, I could see that. Mm -hmm. I could see it being exactly that. And that's yeah. why she was just like, you got to go. And she just got rid of me. So, um, did she talk to you up to that point of like, hey, we're going to go to this homeless shelter. I'm going to drop your butt off right there at the front door. I mean, was there any conversation leading this or was it just, you know, you get taken there? She had tried once before to take me to a group home in San Diego. And on the way, this was before there were phones or anything like that, cell phones. So on the way, the MapQuest directions flew out the window. And so she had no choice but to turn around <laughs> and go back home. That's hilarious. <laughs> like, there, that was it. Like, she had nowhere else to go. Like, she couldn't figure out her way without that, those, that piece of paper, right? And so we went back home. And so when this happened, um, she... She told me she was taking me to a group home. That's what she said. We're going to a group home. Pack your bag. We're going to a group home. So I packed just one little backpack. I'm thinking it's going to be the same thing, right? I'm thinking she's not really going to drop me off. Or, or maybe even in my mind, I thought that a group home was like a house, an actual house with like a group, you know, of kids. And I, I, I had something different in mind of what a group home would be. Um, there's no way that she thought that place was a group home. There was no way. She took me to a homeless shelter. And it was not even a, a, a permanent shelter. It's like, it's just a night shelter where the you have to- The one where you get to like check in at seven- Every day. Or, uh, every mm -hmm. day, and you have to check out, and then the beds are available only when the beds, they're, they're there. Yeah. Exactly, yep, it was exactly that. And so, I mean, I, I think that she had to have known that, you know, she, that that was what it was. Um, but so we show up and it's it looks like an old you know rundown office building and you got to buzz in and we get there and the guy's like this is no that you can't just drop your kid off. I was gonna here. say is this even legal? Yeah. Can I think it was kind of a case of um, we're not going to accept her. We're not going to let you drop her off. But if she has nowhere to go and needs somewhere to sleep, we're going to let her sleep here kind of, you know. So was California law, I know that in some states, that, um, if you are above the age of 15 and pregnant, basically you don't need parental consent for anything any longer. You are an adult. So was it that way in California? Do you know? I don't know. I wasn't pregnant, so it wouldn't have applied to me. But um, no, I was under her uh, thumb the entire time I was homeless. The entire time I was homeless, she maintained control of my life. How can you do that? Yeah, mm -hmm. So, and I mean, I, I mean, I was probably still a write-off for her, <laughs> but I was homeless. I was living on the streets by myself, uh, you know, using the resources that were available to me, 
But for the shelters, if I wanted to live in those shelters and I wanted to be able to stay there, I had to have her permission for things. So if I wanted to, like for example, my grandmother um, was in the hospital and I wanted to travel back to my hometown, which was two hours away, to, to try to say goodbye to my grandmother. And the shelter was like, you can't. Your mom didn't give you permission. And the only way that you could travel is if your mom gives you permission and you know, kind of signs it out. Uh, if you go, you can't come back. So I would have lost my spot in that shelter. And so um, to get into back into high school, I think I went several months, maybe even a year of not being in high school at all because nobody could legally enroll me in high school in Hollywood. And so um, it wasn't until I got a case manager, I ended up getting kind of a permanent position in one of these transitional living homes, and I got a case manager. And that's when they were able to get my mom to sign over permission for me to at least start going back to school. What age were you at this time? 16. Still 16. So Well, I was 17, I think, when I got back into school. So you, I was 16 you never tried to emancipate again? So I wish I had been smarter then than I am now. Um, we did go through the process, and uh, when I got the case manager, she said, we have to get you emancipated because your mom still maintains control, and she's kind of holding that over your head. And so the only way for you to be able to work and to really change your own story and be able to get yourself out of the situation is if you get emancipated. And so we went through a long process of preparing for this. Like you have to go to um, classes, independent living classes. You have yeah. to learn how to write a resume and application. So I did all of that. I was doing very well. And we go to court, and this is the first time I'm gonna see my mom again after she dropped me off. And we go to court. And oddly enough, when we get to the courthouse, my mom and my little sister are there. And I'm like, I want her to be proud of me. Like, I'm there and I'm thinking she's going to be proud of you because you're surviving and you're doing this. And her and my sister are just kind of laughing and making fun of me and kind of tearing me down a little bit in the room, you know, like, what are you wearing? You know, just kind of tearing my spirit down a little bit. And as we get ready to walk into the courtroom with the case manager, I remember she's walking there with her papers and I'm behind her. And my mom says, are you really going to do this to me? Are you really going to drag my again. name through the mud? Yep, <laughs> me, me, me. Yep. You're going to drag my name through the mud, and I'm going to have this on the record for the rest of my life. Are you really going to do this to me? And I pulled the case manager aside, and I said, please, let's just go. And I dropped it. I, didn't, I did not follow through because I didn't want to drag my mom's name through the mud. So you were steps away from seeing a judge getting it signed. Yeah. And you Paperwork was all there. I mean, she had a huge binder. Everything was there. We had done all the work, <clears throat> months worth of work to prepare for this. And all it took was that one moment of manipulation for me to stop. And it, it was hard because now I have to still try to figure out how to make my way and I can't legally work. I can't you know, do anything. And I needed that to be able to change my story and I wasn't able to get it. And so I had to, I had to take other avenues of you know, fake ID and working under the table for less than minimum wage, which you can't change your story in Hollywood, California, making less than minimum wage. And so um, it was really challenging for me to. Wow. Yeah, what what uh, junior or senior, uh, what, what period, sophomore, junior, uh, high school? Um, I think around that time I was a junior, I ended up, uh, I ended up very close to graduating. 
Um, but there was one class that, you know they have those laws where if you miss so many days, no matter what, they have to fail you? Truancy laws, yeah. Yeah, so I had that, and it was my history class, which by the way, I hated history, but I was really good at it. Like I was doing, I was a straight A student, and the teacher hated that he had to fail me. Um, but it, that was at the end of the day, and in order for me to work, I had to leave. I had to basically ditch school to get to my job. And so I missed more than, I think it was 17 days or something like that. And um, that was holding me back from graduating. So I tried to do night school. I tried everything, but I, I was, I was, it was a cycle. And you know, I either needed to work or go to school, and neither of them was going to get me ahead because the jobs that I was doing are dead end. Mm -hmm. And then trying to go to school, I wouldn't be able to work, and so it was just this the systemic issue that just kept me from being able to progress. Yeah. Wow. And you know, um, interesting enough, I mean, that's the kind of thing that can happen any point in life. I mean, there are people who even get off of active duty and in some cases they think they can go to college and they realize that they got to pay the beast and the beast is the bills and they can't pay the apartment and everything and live the lifestyle that they want to do outside of the military because they're accustomed to having a place to go to sleep to being told where to be and all that and they have these freedoms now and you're right it's it's uh it, it ends up catching up with them as well in very much the same way but so okay you're living this and how did you once again pull yourself together to break the cycle to, because you did so where was it that you said, okay, enough is enough. I need to figure out a way now to get out of Dodge and correct my life, which was, I think, joining the Navy. But, I mean, what, how did that um, come about? There was always something different in my spirit. I don't know why, but there was always this little fighter in there, you know, always. And, and it might have been more so a dreamer. I was a dreamer, so I was probably manifesting for myself long before I even understood what manifesting was. I, I knew that there was something out there for me. I knew that my life was not going to stop there. And when I got dropped off at the homeless shelter, I actually met a girl who had already been roped into sex trafficking. She was heavily addicted to heroin, and that was one of the first people I met. And she looked very similar to me. Like she, her body was, you know, she had scabs and she was very skinny, but I, I could imagine that if she had a healthy life, she would have looked a lot like me. And so hearing her tell her story and explain what had happened, I was like, this is not gonna be my end state. There's no way I'm letting this happen to me. And so throughout the time that I was living on the streets and the various attempts to kind of lure me into sex trafficking or try to get me to do drugs that would get me hooked, um, I always thought of that girl. And I always thought like, I'm not gonna be that girl. And so I ended up aging out of the, the youth system. And so I turned 18 and I could no longer stay in, at that time I was living in a transitional living home. And so it's a home for ages 14 to 18 years old where you kind of transition. So it's not, you don't have like parental type guidance. You can work, you save money, go to school. Um, so I ended up phasing out of that and moving into an adult uh, transitional living home. And so it's called Covenant House. It's a, a really well-known shelter. And they had a program where, uh, you know, you live there for a certain amount of time, you save some of your paycheck, and then they'll help you with moving into an apartment. But it's like a um, subsidized apartment, just steps to kind of get you out of that. And so I was doing the right things. I was going to work, and I was living in that home, and I was, I was doing everything right. Um, 
And my friend came up to me and was like, I joined the Navy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> the military. Like, <laughs> you know, we're in Hollywood. Like, we don't join the military. We, we have, you know, we're going to be all famous models and actresses and all that, right? <laughs> so um, she was like, the recruiter wants to meet you. And so they invite me to Carl's Jr., free food. There you go, Carl's Jr. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I go in there and I get like, you know, the big, you know, I think it's like a Western cheeseburger, right? Like smothered in barbecue sauce. It was delicious. And um, the recruiter really sold me because he said, you'll always be next to the ocean. The ship is like, you know, th oh, there's a Exotic bowling alley. places yeah. to see. <laughs> you get to travel the world. It's like a cruise ship, right? <laughs> there's a bowling alley on the ship, which there never was a bowling But I looked for the bowling alley. I never found it. <laughs> but he got me. Um, and so the, the big thing was is, you know, we'll be able to get you you'll go to college and you'll be able to change your life. And so what did I have going for me? Like, what was I leaving? Nothing. And so it was just like, let's just take the risk and see what happens. However, I had not graduated high school. And so, you know, the military, you got to have your, your high school diploma in order to join the military. So we had to actually get a waiver to come into the military. And so um, I remember you know, preparing for the waiver. At first I had to take the ASVAP and yeah. <laughs> study for all that, um, get a high enough score so that that would lend to me getting the waiver. And then I remember them making me go in and like report to a chief. You know, I have to stand at attention and all this. As a civilian. <laughs> As a civilian. Oh my god. You know, I got like burgundy hair, like long nails, and I'm in there like trying to to sell myself to this chief, this uh, you know E7, and um, and so I did. I, I told him what my situation was, and this is why I didn't graduate high school. But these are the steps that I've been trying to take, and um, they granted me the waiver. They let me come in. Boot camp, I didn't realize that the boot camp had like a program where you can come in, but then after you graduate boot camp, you have to stay for an extra week and earn your GED. Mm. So, so I was going to ask you if you had to do that prior. So they were allowed, yeah. they let you in through the exception without a GED, which yeah. is, I don't know that that happens a lot. You want to know something even funnier? I actually made, I think I was like an E5 without even having GED because I slipped through a whole bunch of system like programs. I was supposed to get it in boot camp, right? But they forgot and they assigned me an A school, like an MOS. Yeah. And so after we graduated boot camp, I got sent along my way and we all forgot that I was supposed to do well, I mean, I think I knew, but yeah, I was yeah, like, but you sure you knew, longer, right? yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm not staying. Yeah, but you had orders and I, I can leave. <laughs> The, the Navy has, I don't know if the other services have it, but it's kind of like an undesignated program where you come in without uh, an MOS. No. So they Not, have, Well, at least the Army doesn't. I mean, the Army is, you, you get everything guaranteed up yeah. front. I, I had think a guy in my platoon came in without a GED, my first platoon, but he had to have his GED before he his orders were good to go yeah. to go to yeah. Germany. So he had to at least go he and to, he did his take the test. And then yeah. took his GED and then... Then his orders were good. Yeah, that's what I would have thought <clears throat> would have happened here. Or should have. <laughs> yeah, or that they make you take the GED before you even can enlist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so I'm assuming you scored your AFQT score was probably over a 50, which is between a 50 and 99, I think is what it has to be. So in other words, you were in a, you were in a category where they were willing to take the risk on you because they knew yeah. that, okay, you, you're going to pass the GED. It's just more of, yeah. um, can we get you in the pipeline now? Um, or is it something we're going to have to tell you, no, you're going to have to wait, you got to get your GED, which would probably have been another burden for you in another way of trying to figure out yeah. how am I going to get the GED and, you know. Still work and feed myself, you yeah. know, because I was still living in survival mode at the time. 
And actually, so that that kind of so when I got accepted into the Navy, I was supposed to leave in December. So every day matters when you're homeless. And so a day for a homeless person is probably like a month for a person who has all of their their needs met. And so I was supposed to leave in December. I had gotten my MOS assigned. It was I was going to be a storekeeper, um, but the shelter said kicked me out. They said that doesn't that's not part of our program, so you got to leave like that day. And so now it's, um, I think it was... Not, not part of the program. What does that yeah. mean? So their program was that I had to, in order to complete, I, I would have to complete the program and then move into an apartment. Those and so are they the had, steps, the subsidized yeah, housing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, what, but the joining the Navy is just not part just of the program. Not, it's not part of the program because then I, I don't think I would have counted towards their numbers, which got them Aha. money. Uh, yeah. See, that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. Aha! The government <laughs> now, funding. Now, now, you know, hit it on the head here. We, <laughs> yeah. You said the right thing right there. Yep, yeah, yeah. and so... I can't get credit. Therefore, I don't get paid. Yes. That's what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not, are we doing the right thing for Janae at this moment to make sure she has a better life? Exactly. Yeah. Although it is that way, but it's still, you know, I know what, yeah. Yep. We're painting the picture. Yep. Exactly. So they kicked me out right away. I wow. packed my bag and I actually had to sleep in the lobby of the shelter because I didn't have anywhere to go. And so I contacted the recruiter and I'm like, I got to go now. I have nowhere to sleep. I have nowhere to live. I got kicked out. Um, so he was able to get me in sooner. I left on Halloween day, um, but I had to come in undesignated. So I actually had to forego my MOS that I was so excited for. I call it MOS, but in the Navy it's a rate. Um, and go in undesignated, which would mean, I think undesignated you have to go a certain amount of time, like a year or year, two years, and then you can kind of strike. Like it's an apprentice type program. Ah, okay. And so I accepted that because I needed to go. I just got, I got to get out of here. I, I don't have anywhere else to live. So I go in undesignated, and when I get into boot camp, my RDCs, my drill instructors, are um, storekeepers, what I wanted. And so I start telling them my story. And I'm like, that was what I wanted to do, but this is what happened and why I couldn't. So they were able to work some things out to actually fix that for me and get me sent to the storekeeper A school. And so I ended up not being undesignated. I got a rating out of boot camp, which was all of this is stuff that just doesn't happen. These are all like anomalies. I don't know how all of this is, is just aligning, but it is. Um, but when they did that, that's what changed my orders. And none of us took that into consideration that I was going to leave right after boot camp and not go to that program. So I go to A school, number one in my A school. And, um, and then when we deployed, uh, they brought along professors on board the ship to, so we could take classes, college courses while we were deployed. And I tried to sign up for one. <laughs> and they're like, well, you're kind of missing something really important here before you start college, and that's finishing high school. <laughs> so, and so the, my, my leaders were like, how did you get here? Like, how did you get this far without even having your high school diploma or GED? And so here we are, you know. Operation During Freedom just kicks off. We're over here performing combat operations, and I'm on the mess decks taking the GET test. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so it was kind of an interesting story about how all that went down. <laughs> yeah, and it, what's so cool about this story is it, it um, 
they when they changed the orders, they didn't know the cycle of events is what what was happening here. You know, so they tried to help you out and they were trying to take care of you. But like you said, they then changed the orders, which then gave you the opportunity to go on and go forward without the Navy even realizing it. And so everybody's living their life. Everybody's normal until all of a sudden you kind of wave your hand again. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody would have ever found out about this. No. But what is a storekeeper for those of us who have no idea yeah, what, what you're talking that? about? Yeah, well, now it's changed. So it's logistics. It's supply. Okay. So, uh, okay. I, I manage like the supply on board. And so it's a li- now they're called logistics specialist. Okay. Yeah. Right. I got to fix your microphone. It's driving okay. me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thirsty. Nothing so. to do with you. It has everything to do with this boom probably being a little bit too long. Do you want me to scoot closer? I could just yeah. do that. Yeah. Okay. That should be better now. It shouldn't. Are we good there? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Yeah, I could hear it kind of going in and out. So. Yeah. yeah, it's because it kept it. I was I couldn't see it falling, but every time I looked over it at you, lower, it was lower. further away, f- <laughs> yeah. and and it's then it was like, all right, I can't do it any longer. <laughs> so in you know in the army and stuff, logistics is basically supply chain or those types of things. So it's a very good trade. But when I heard storekeeper, and I remember you sent a photo and it said storekeeper on it. I, I was sitting there trying to think of, okay, is it sort of like running a, you know, an annex, a conex kind of thing, you know, and it's, uh, and it kind of is, but I think it's, there's a lot more to it than just, I, I'm glad they changed the name, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah, well, actually, it's not. It's funny because, oh, it's so, no, <laughs> okay. I know. Well, I thought that too, because when I asked for that rate, I was working in retail and I was like, I don't want to change what I'm doing. I like this. I like being a salesperson. I want to work in the store. And so they were like, yeah, you could be a storekeeper. So it sounded like I was going to be in retail. Um, actually, in the Navy, uh, the person who worked in like the ship store and the retail was called a ship serviceman. And the storekeepers managed the warehouse. And we did all the logistics of the ordering behind the scenes. And we did the, fi- the, the financial management. So it, it wasn't it, like you would think that that was a person managing the store, but it's not. They're, they were called ship servicemen. And so what they did was they actually merged all of that, and now they're all called logistics specialists. But it was a good trade for me because um, I wanted to eventually have my own store or have my own business, and that was going to lend to that. And so just understanding stock control, understanding um, the logistics management did pay off in my future. And it, 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 I was able to transition very well with those skills, whereas if you have something that sounds really cool, but doesn't really relate to the outside world, you know, some people struggle with that. So choice and rate matters. Yeah, no doubt. Well, that's why I say supply chain, logistics, that kind of stuff is absolutely an important trade out here, especially if you're going into businesses, or just about anything for that matter. I mean, you can go into the grocery store business and get into that. But, you know, you're in the manufacturing type of business and stuff where it's important to get the product to the customer quickly. Amazon is an example now, Mm -hmm. you know, and these other kind of companies and stuff that are trying to deliver, especially product of the door within 48 hours understanding you were given an opportunity to really learn um and i don't know if you knew that up front though you know that ability to learn business yeah and you know but is when you when you saw yourself at the very beginning when you were if i take you back to the shelter moments um where did you see your life in like five years where did you see yourself wanting to be you know, and you, you joked about, you know, being an actor, uh, actress or, you yeah. know, something of that nature. But um, what was the reality? What were you really seeing at that moment? I knew that that wouldn't be something that I was going to do because, you know, in Hollywood, uh, that's one place where you actually do see all the failed actors and actresses. And so you, I saw the 
the the dark side of that world and um, so that wasn't something that I expected for myself because uh, people had come out there with resources that I didn't have and they weren't able to make it. So there was no way I was going to make it. I wanted to own a clothing store. I wanted Is to it? own my own shop. And I was working in one and I loved the lady that I worked for, but she couldn't afford to pay me more. Um, but that was my dream. And so that was what I told the recruiter was one day I want to own my own store. And so that's why he recommended that I do storekeeping. I did not realize that I was going to get those business skills. Um, I, I, I don't know what I thought I was going to get really out of it because I didn't have the the vision um, to to even. I didn't I didn't have anything to envision. You know, I didn't have an example to understand what that meant. Um, so I was kind of just going into it, kind of like I do everything in life, where it's just like, I'm just going to jump and see what happens, and <laughs> I'm going to make it no matter what. <laughs> so did you end up going on and getting your degree after you got the GED? I did. I, I actually got my degree. I served eight years active, and then after I got out of the military, uh, I ended up getting a GS job uh, at, in supply and right in my field. And I went back to college, and while I was pregnant with my second daughter, I got my um, bachelor's degree in business management. Wow, uh, so congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Was, I cried as I walked the stage. I walked that stage, too. Yeah. I was like, I'm walking that stage. I earned this. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. I mean, when you think about all the things that you came um, through in the very beginning to reach that point, um, I mean, this is almost like a made-for-movie type of thing, mm -hmm. you know, most certainly. And, and I think, you know, you're giving hope for people who may be in very similar situations, either listening to it or they're at some point, what if it's the early gen, you know, gen A and you're in the, um, you just joined the Navy and you're in that state where, what do I want to be when I grow up? Where do I want to go? And you're giving hope, but, well, okay, maybe I do need to think more about, you know, getting a, a degree, which mm -hmm. may complement my current experience, which may lead to an opportunity Yes. You know, I mean, that that's really what it's all about kind of thing. It know? is. And like sharing my story is challenging. It's hard because you have to relive a lot. And not only do you have to relive it, but you're you're sharing your deepest, darkest secrets, your pains. I mean, I've shared things with you that most people would never talk about. Right. Because when you give that to people, you give people who want to hurt you a gift. Now they know what they can use to hurt you, right? When somebody says, well, I knew she didn't have a father, like that, that hits a little bit. And so, um, but I'm willing to take that risk if that's what it's going to take to help people change their stories and take control of their lives. And so that's why I'm out here telling my story because I want to give that hope to people. We have to, you know, in order to inspire the next generation. I'm curious, you know, because we're people use the on the ground. So I'm curious to know from your perspective of being um, ship deployed and everything during the early phase of GWAT and everything. What was it like? You know? Yeah. And it's it's interesting because a lot of people uh, aren't OK with us calling ourselves combat <laughs> veterans. But we actually what people don't realize is that Operation Enduring Freedom kicked off V from C, you know, we couldn't get on boots on the ground if we had not conducted those air operations. And so the being on a ship, being in combat, it's, it's more of a mental thing. We had just come from prior to 9-11, the, the ship hosted the Pearl Harbor movie premiere mm -hmm. on board. Our ship did. And so Ben Affleck, Kate Beckinsale, all the celebrities were on board. And we all watched the movie Pearl Harbor in Pearl Harbor. And so we went around and we saw all, you know, the, the USS Arizona and all of that. 
So we under, we understood as sailors what combat at sea could result in. We understood what it could be. 9-11 um, happens, and then we find out we're going to war. So we all have that in our mind of this could be us now. Um, so it's frightening, and you have this, you're not there seeing it firsthand, you're not seeing the results of what is happening, but you know, and you can feel it, and there's this kind of eerie feeling on the ship of, you know, you've got that constant smell of the jet fuel, and like you, you know what's happening, but you're not there physically seeing it. It's, I wouldn't say it's equally as traumatizing as somebody who's boots on the ground, but it definitely is frightening, and it definitely is combat, you know? Um, and and w without all the pieces, we couldn't, nobody in, you know, the United States could not conduct their mission. And so I think that's what a lot of people forget is that, you know, the ships provide a, a huge piece of the puzzle. I'm glad you said that because so often individuals focus on specific areas of military as if those are the primary. And yes, there's no doubt about it. The boots on the ground, the, in, in the military, especially the Marine Corps and the Army, those within combat arms, MOSs, are those that are up front, you know, typically doing the more close combat type of um, combat. But everything around them, and it may be a ratio of 20 to 1 or some other number mm -hmm. of individuals who are enablers who are actually mm -hmm. part of helping support that fight on the mm -hmm. front line. And that yes. we forget about in many cases. You know, everybody focuses on JSOC and especially around Delta operators and everything, but they don't understand all those people back at JSOC, all those other uh, special mission units that are that are part of supporting those operators, uh, boots on the ground type of thing, are equally as important performing a role that if they don't do it, success doesn't happen. Right. I think there is there is a statistic out there, and I wish I had it in front of me, but how many people it takes in order for every person that's boots on the ground to be successful. There's, I think, like 100 or 1,000 people that it takes just to get that one person to be successful. And we also, um, we carried the Navy SEALs on board with us while we were there. So it was, you know, we had the Marines, we had the Navy SEALs on board, and we were moving them around. And so um, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that, and providing that air coverage, right? All of that is necessary. The, the person who is doing the paperwork is necessary, necessary in order for that boots on the ground person to be successful and to be able to come home safely. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that what's important for people to understand in the military is that me being a combat veteran doesn't take anything away from your experience as a combat veteran. Yeah. And so that we all have different levels of experience, but it doesn't I'm not taking anything away from you by having been to combat as well in a different capacity. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that there's this weird competition sometimes where it's like, you can't call yourself a combat veteran. And it's like, well, that doesn't take anything away from your experience. And frankly, I, I respect what you've been through and I wouldn't want that for myself. And so I'm not trying to take anything away from you, you know? And so I don't know why we try to gatekeep these labels and these titles that we've earned. Yeah, no, yeah. very well said. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think it's more than, than just that because we tend to size people up differently. Within the, you know, the Army, we, yeah. we see the trinkets on the, the trophy uh, chest and stuff, even within our um, daily uniforms, not even in our dress uniforms. And then, of course, it gets, ex I think, exasperated when you start seeing the, the chest when they do whip out the, the uniform. Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah, okay, now yeah. you got one. And, and it's all about um, sizing people up 
or the patches. And, you know, even when I post a picture sometimes, I can't believe that guy is actually sitting there. He didn't even have a combat patch, <laughs> you know, whereas other branches don't have combat patches. Yeah. So mm-hmm. sometimes I wish we'd just be stripped down so that nobody mm-hmm. would, There was a time frame where it was, I think, better understood. Um, Obviously, you know, the infantry has a set of pride, you know, that goes within that. Um, he's cavalry I'm armor. They, like, was their, they like their blue stuff. Yeah, the blue cord and all that. So, I, you know, um, God love you if you're listening and all that. I mean, but we all have to understand, to your point, we had a role. Yeah. And every person has a job to do. And so people always ask, you know, what's the difference between, you know, a ranger, a seal, um, a delta, or this, that? They all have a job to do. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. If you don't carry anything else away, each one of them performed a role. Whether you were a PJ, you know, whether you were a SEAL or, you know, if we put them all into a ring and ask them to fight, I don't know who would come out, you know, and it might just depend upon the individual, the 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 amount of hair gel or the The environment. (laughs) It's funny you say that about the the chest candy, too, because um, I earned some warfare pins that are really hard to get in the Navy. And so I have a surface warfare pin and an aviation warfare pin, and it's really hard to get both of those. It's a lot. It takes. It could take a year and a half to, to earn one. And so a lot of times, um, because I served before there were cell phones and, you know, I didn't, I don't have a lot of like digital pictures of me in uniform. And so people will be like, oh, she served, you know, just for the clout or whatever. And then when I post a picture of me in uniform, they're like, oh, wow, you're dual warfare? Mad respect. And I'm like, oh, now I get respect because mm. of what you saw, you know? So... We have the same thing in the Navy where it's like mm-hmm. as soon as they see that you've earned those warfare pins, it's like, oh, okay, now you have my respect. And so I don't get it. I respect everybody who, who took, you know, you, you signed up, but you sometimes don't get a choice where they send you. That yeah. doesn't mean that you weren't yeah. willing to, to go where it others It was the whole went. reason why you signed up, right? It was the whole reason why yeah. you swore <laughs> is that you would defend the Constitution of the United States, and and yet then we start labeling individuals of, yeah. oh, yeah, but you didn't get a chance to do that. <laughs> Therefore, you're not called a veteran. I mean, in some countries, they actually don't call you a veteran unless you actually did go to combat. Oh, wow. And so in those cases, you were just a person that served Mm -hmm. and and i feel like i don't know if that's right because again like you're saying you had people who had a role back in the states as much as those people that were on the front line there you may have been doing a rotation training and then you were going to go to a totally different area um, within the world to deploy for a specific need but may not have received any knowledge any recognition whatsoever and may not have even been known to the general public Therefore, you don't get to have any trinkets or any wards or anything. But because you don't have it, that means you didn't do something. Mm -hmm. Um, We talk about it a lot on the the show about we eat our own. And and it's true. Um, We do it inside the service and we do it when we get out. I I don't understand why all of that is so important, you know, beyond me. And it's crazy because when it comes to going up against, you know, someone on the outside we all unify right oh no you're not coming from my you know my brothers in arms but then like you said we inside we're all just (laughs) you know like just competing of whose service is more important than whose and you know like i get bullied online bullied for owning for and it took me a long time to finally own my 
I am a combat veteran and I do have the GWAT. And so it's like, it took a long time for me to finally say, no, I'm going to own that. And I'm going to go ahead, because I, I wouldn't put it on because I felt like if I put it on any of my social media or I, I said it or anything along that lines that I felt like I was um, maybe taken away from those who were amputees or who did, you know, lose their life. So for it took me a long time to finally say, no, I'm going to own it because this is part of my story. And I did have this experience, but I still, I mean, somebody that didn't even read my book went on Amazon and put a negative review saying she's not a combat sailor or a combat um, veteran because sailors can't be in combat. <laughs> so there's actually a negative review on my book on Amazon from somebody who did not read the book, who does not know my story, just probably, because probably I- Probably an army guy. <laughs> I bet they're real fun at parties, too. <laughs> Can you imagine like being so mad that you go to Amazon and you write a review about somebody? <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, and the, the way, you know, like there was, uh, there's been females that came on the show and I probably didn't give you all the, the whole spiel before you came on about, um, listen, you're going to probably get a hard time just coming on the Mentors Military <laughs> podcast and, and talking. Uh, but the, especially if there's been female Marines, I don't know why in the world, man, I mean, they like, they can be very, um, it, it can get very challenging. Yes. You know, I, I've had to actually shut the comments off. Um, wow. Because it's just like, listen, I'm not going to put up with that. You know, I just I can't let that happen. I can't support it by yeah. just letting it ramble on. And people yeah. will say, well, that's you know, you should allow the voice or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it's the Mentors Military podcast, and mm -hmm. it's our you know, I'm the host of the podcast, so <laughs> I get to choose what I decide to put Absolutely. out there, type of thing. Um, and I wasn't going to support that at all. Um, I think this is an amazing book, and I, I really want people to go out there and look more into it. Perfectly Flawed, uh, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. and um, But there's a lot of things like you mentioned, out, you know, not just let's add more to the book. You know, you've got the um, online clothing and stuff, so yes. let's talk about that. So I, I started gaining a little bit of a social media following in 2018. I did a... Um, uh, Maxim CoverGirl contest to raise money for uh, homeless veterans. And I was a little nervous about that because I didn't want to pose in Maxim, but it was a good cause. And so I ended up, my story actually, that was the first time my, my story went viral. And so Fox News, all the, the mainstream media covered it. And I didn't win the contest, but I won the journey of getting to share my story. Um, after that, I kind of went through a phase of like, what do I do now with my social media platform? I, I'm, I'm very successful in my professional world, but what do I do now that I have this social media following? And I was like, oh, this is my chance to open a boutique. Remember, that was my dream. And now I have an audience and maybe I can get people to buy my clothes and to like enjoy my fashion. And so I did get a little bit of heat because it was like, oh, your followers are all men and, you know, you're not going to have any women to support you. No, I did. And, and I had women who had large followings themselves, female influencers. And so I took the risk and I used that knowledge that I had from the Navy of, of supply chain and I used the business management skills that I had. And then I somehow was able to figure out marketing on my own. And, you know, we just put about $4,000 of investment in and started from scratch and I, I develop my own website, I do all of my stock and control, I do the shipping and receiving and everything, everything, modeling and marketing and customer service. And so um, we've been open since 2019. And I, I think my favorite part about it is 
being in the military, I felt a little bit like my identity was stripped away and my femininity yeah. was being stripped away. And I felt like when, you know, when we would be out of uniform, I would take a lot of heat for the kind of fashion that I would have. And, you know, I would get in trouble. <laughs> I actually had to, like, at one point, the, the master chief of the ship had a rule where in order for me to leave the ship, I, he had to come inspect what I was wearing. Yeah. Oh. I swear. He was that concerned. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I would wear, like, flip-flops or I would wear tank tops or, you know. And so he, there was, like, a period where I actually needed his permission and his inspection. But, I mean, I would have clothes in my backpack, so I don't know why he thought that would work. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but, I mean, they really just tried to strip that away because it was so different and so when I started my business a lot of the the women who are either in the military or veterans were like oh my gosh finally a military business that's not tactical or patriotic or um, activewear like it's dresses and like cute flirty fun stuff and they started stepping out of their comfort zones and really wearing those clothes and they felt like they were able to kind of regain their feminine identity as well and so all veterans don't look the same. Some of us are really girly girls, but yet we're still willing to go to war and we're yeah. still willing to fight for this country. And so that's kind of the perception that I'm trying to change is that we're, we're all different, but we all still have that same heart and that same grit. And so I've, I've developed a really cool network of people who support my brand and we're still successful today. So I'm grateful for that. Wow, that's awesome. And really I think, cool. yeah, I think that you're going to get ate up already just from those comments alone that, <laughs> yeah. all right, so you went to Maxima and <laughs> Maxim and you created the social media and you did all this to put yourself out there and promote it. Listen, there is absolutely nothing wrong with promoting yourself if that's what you want to do. And especially if you're the image of your business and what you're yes. trying to promote, mm -hmm. because how many how many times do I get contacted by individuals that want me to share their photo, you know, and to put it out there because of a large audience? A lot. Mm -hmm. And and so, but they're the same people or some of them are some of the same people that will turn around and eat you alive for what you're, yeah. you're trying to do as well. Big time. If they can get a little blue check next to their name and have the opportunity to go out there and create a following because they feel like the blue check gives them credence or importance, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's It's all about, you know, what you're trying to accomplish here, and I think what you're doing, the message that you're trying to send is important. You know, there is a certain way and a behavior and a culture that we create around the military, female especially. You know, the uniforms don't always fit right. Um, they're trying to get better and better at that, but I, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty much males who create all uniforms, most, most likely. Uh, and so when you do get off active duty, you want to go back to being yourself. Yes. Guys do the same thing. And there are plenty of attire that, you know, when we don't do that. So I, I totally see what you're trying to do here. Yeah. And um, I think it's great. So how, you. how, you know, in three years and stuff, you know, COVID was a positive thing for you or, you know, how did that work? Because it, it was tough for my business. Um, it, it negatively affected my business, actually. Um, so I had to pivot. Um, when when the pandemic happened because my clothing is not leisure wear it is like stuff that you would wear to a party or to an event people stopped buying it because they were like i don't have anywhere to wear it i'm just sitting at home in sweatpants mm. and i didn't have anything like that so i had to kind of readapt and it was tough to do that because i didn't want to go that direction like that was the whole point you know but I, I realized that in order to sustain my business, I had to kind of take some take some risks and move in a different direction. And so I was able to, to kind of keep it alive. Um, during the pandemic, I actually got selected for my current position, which is the chief of Air Force Lodging. 
And so we were we PCS'd from Hawaii to San Antonio. And so all of my stock was in my house. All my inventory was in my house. And so I had to put it on a ship and move it to San Antonio. So I actually had to close my business for a couple months because I wouldn't be able to ship out the stuff. You got to wait for household goods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go from Oconus to Conus household. Thanks, household goods. Exactly that. Um, so, yeah, so I had to wait for that to happen. And so I ended up in the middle of the pandemic, you know, being negatively affected by the pandemic and then having to wait for wait. my stuff to be shipped. So you had to inventory your stuff as well as all of your stock. Yeah. Because you weren't allowed to pack it because someone else came in and packed up all your stuff. Yeah. yeah. So you had to, like, do the label thing for... For my own stuff. For your own stuff <laughs> and for your business stuff. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It was a lot. It was a lot of work. That that trans And in the middle of the pandemic, we transitioned, right? So we had to, like, fly from, you know, Hawaii up to Washington, sit there for, like, nine hours and then come down. But all with all the protocols in place. Yeah. And it was really tough. Um, but so I closed my business for a couple months and just kind of getting it restarted was tough because I had to get the word back out, mm -hmm. get people excited again. And so, um, it was, it was a challenge, but I, you know what I did was I actually moved over to uh, TikTok and <laughs> TikTok's where it's at for marketing. <laughs> a lot of people are not friendly with that. And I understand, but I was watching Gary V. He's a, he's a big um, business influencer. Yeah. And he was like, if you're not on TikTok, then, you know, you're you're missing out. And so I was like, well, I'm going to try it. And I went over there and I'll tell you, one video resulted in like twenty five thousand dollars in sales for my business. And so it just brought me back. Wow. It brought me right back. Uh, if I had not done that, I would have probably had to close my business. Wow. And Holy so, cow. yeah. So one video and it wasn't even a uh, I wasn't even promoting. It was just I was responding to a negative comment. And people were like, where'd you get that bralette? And then like I sold out like five times <laughs> in the bralettes. I had to keep calling the, the, the supplier and be like, send me more tomorrow. <laughs> oh, my God. So, uh -huh. so like um, did you use like a burner phone so that they, uh, China is not following everything you do on TikTok? Or? <laughs> but I don't have anything for them to follow. Like, who yeah. am I? Oh, right? they, trust me, they are. They'll find uh, something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot more that you probably don't know about that, yeah, they're yeah. following. Uh, that's, and that's the only reason why, you know, we haven't really got into TikTok is for that reason, you know, mm -hmm. security risk and stuff, and it's really huge. But I have heard people say the same thing. I didn't realize it was that big, though. Yes. That's yeah. huge. It sells out. Businesses, um, it, it'll sell your inventory completely out. And so I'm glad now, though, that Instagram is moving to Reels because it's the same concept. And mm -hmm. so all these people are like, oh, I don't watch TikToks. They're lame. And I'm like, you're actually watching it on Reels. All we're doing is moving the same video or, over here. Or YouTube shorts, the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. And and now I think even Facebook has them, yeah. right? And so, and and they're pushing them because they want to compete with TikTok. So they're actually, if you're on Instagram and you post a static picture and you post a Reel, your Reel's going to get more engagement than your static picture because they're trying to compete with TikTok talk right now you know i saw the i saw the change and of course i saw instagram i figured that was what they were trying to do with the reels i guess my biggest challenge that i've had is that um and and not only that but all the co-hosts and stuff we just don't want to put ourselves out there in that way yeah. um as a matter of fact one of the reasons why i'm interested in military is called that is it's not called the robert gowan podcast and everything and i'm not because i don't want to promote myself i'd rather mm -hmm. promote you guys and what you guys are doing what you're all about than i would be myself you know it's not about me it's about the stories it's about the you know the veterans and stuff and what they're trying to accomplish and if it you know we always talk about if it you know on, on the background if it helps one person mm -hmm. 
we did what we wanted. Yep. And it, it accomplished everything we wanted out of it. And that's how we kind of get rewarded. Now, there is a, a monetary side of this that we have to, of course, maintain everything that you see, you know, that's around you. Um, and in order to do that kind of stuff, you have to have some form of uh, income. But using that type of platform like a reel means you have to put yourself out there. Now, you talk yes. about having to put yourself, tell your story behind this microphone, doing that on a, like a nanosecond basis and like every day doing four reels yeah. or, yes. you know, or what. That's like, that's it's scary. a lot. That's heavy marketing. It is. is it's very marketing. scary. And But you know what? That's what people want to see. They're bored with the perfect image. They're bored with the... Um, perfectly constructed image. They want to see that quirky side of you. They want to see that behind the scenes side. And so you'll see there's a lot of celebrities that are starting to actually get on social media and do these TikTok videos and reels. And they're trying to do the quirky stuff too to show. And people like that. They're like, oh, so you mean, you know, that celebrity that I've been following has the same, you know, issues as me? Or So they, they like to see the imperfect side speaking of i'm perfectly flawed right so i get it i get to be that no matter what um but they like that and so i think that actually gets more engagement now from what i'm seeing than um if you post like a you know perfectly structured photo uh and uh, i've seen it mm-hmm. uh, no i've seen it actually within the i would say the last three months whatever uh, new algorithms and part of the challenge with like uh, social media is that they're forever, probably because of you know Joe Rogan and some of those who were able to blossom out, and because of that, they they're now trying to like level the field in a, in a sense. So that's why when you're now going through social media, you start seeing that your posts are probably not getting the same amount of attention, and it's not because you're being shadow blocked or anything like that. It's because the algorithm is now being created in a way that promotes reels, promotes people that are actually not static, but actually you know vibrant and everything. So, but what they're also doing is on your feed, creating that information of, you know, Janae is following this person, this person, that's why you're seeing it. Yeah. So now the stuff that you would normally see if you follow 50 people becomes 200 people you got to get through yep. in yeah. order to find the 50 people that you yeah. typically follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I don't follow a lot of accounts and stuff, you know, at Mentors for Military, primarily because the people who have been on the show, I want to stay in contact with. Mm-hmm. I want to... You know, we're now part of a family that I often think about one day we'll all get together and, uh, you know, be cool for all the guests to see each other and meet them and stuff like that. It's kind of crazy. I Let's know. do so, it. I think that's awesome. So, so uh, we'll do a TikTok video. Yeah. So, But it, it's uh, it's so interesting that, you know, they, they figure out ways, whatever you think is the norm, they're going to flip it on you before too long. So now it's reels. It's going to be something else before too long. Mm-hmm. And um, the static uh, pictures and stuff like that are now the bygone. You're not going to get that many likes now that you typically would. No, people are bored with it. And um, you have to always, in business, you have to always be ready to pivot. You have to always be ready to find out what the next, it's marketing. You know, what's the next thing that people are using? And try to even get a little bit ahead of it. Because once everybody catches on, it becomes diluted. And, you know, now they're already moving on to the next thing. And I think that's where a lot of celebrities are starting to realize that they took a little too long. They relied on, um, you know, that status that they already had. And these TikTok stars are rising way above them. And they're becoming, you know, they're getting paid more for one post than a a big A-list celebrity would. 
And so they're realizing like, wow, because they're selling. Because are you gonna buy from some A-list celebrity that you may or may not trust or you know that you know is being paid or from, you know, Janae, who is just like me, but she recommends this product. And so, you know, 600,000 people have seen that and they're going to buy from. So people are starting to catch on to that. And so now the celebrities are trying to come over and show their quirky side, show that they're real people so that they can still continue to market themselves. But I'm telling you, man, these social media stars are rising. And it's because they're always ready to pivot. They're always watching the program and seeing what the next best thing is. Janae, they're young attractive whatever and i think it's it's a challenge for um to keep up with that kind of stuff and for me i can tell you personally again if you're somebody that usually is um you know got a close circle you don't normally get out there that much except i do a podcast but outside of that but when you're talking about doing you know describing this whole thing on the rails and stuff uh, we'll have to talk offline i actually talk as a consultant, you know, and now as uh, an executive in a company about the marketing challenges and things and how companies need to uh, pivot. It's so funny, you're saying all the right things and things that I say, but yet I'm not ready to apply that. And (laughs) and it it is absolutely. I poured, did you see the one where I got beer poured on me? Like, no, (laughs) I shouldn't have done it. I'm 40 years old. What am I doing? (laughs) But um, it's a trend. And so with TikTok and, and even Instagram Reels, you follow the trends. Like you were saying, they push out this algorithm. And so if there's a trend, a trending sound or a trending song that is part of that a algorithm, challenge. a challenge, if you don't, you know, you've got to find a way to jump on that. And so there's one, it's like, uh, I'm thirsty. And then they pour like a whole bunch of water on you. And then you're like, oh, refreshing. And so I was at a brewery. Uh, I'm working with this brewery on an event that's coming up. And I'm sitting there in my like perfectly flawed dress, you know, my heels. And I was like, okay, I want to do this trend. And I show it to them and they're like, no, you're lying. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. Do you have some, you know, old beer that you want to throw on me? And they're like, are you kidding me? I was like, don't ever take for granted the opportunity of having somebody who's willing to do these TikTok videos or these reels, having them in front of you because this is your chance to use that and, you know, start to push yourself out there. So we did it. And everybody thought I was crazy, and I am a little crazy. I mean, I didn't get here by being normal. (laughs) (laughs) And so we do it. It was fun. And afterwards, they did, I don't know if you guys have seen the tortilla challenge. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, you're the slapping, you got to hold your, you you drink something, right? And you You got to fill your mouth up. You fill your mouth with water. We could do that after if you guys have some tortillas here. Uh, (laughs) I'm down. Um, I've got a lot of practice on that one. So you fill your mouth up, and then you smack them, and then whoever spits out the water first, like, loses. And so after we left, they did the tortilla challenge and they were like, oh, you motivated us to start doing reels. And so it's like, you know, just kind of jump on those trends, have fun, be quirky, be silly. Um, Yeah, you're humiliating yourself a little bit. You know, my kids are like, mom, you're kind of embarrassing. And I'm like, I'm the cool mom. (laughs) And their friends say that. They're like, your mom's really cool. (laughs) See? Yeah. So uh, where can they learn more about the um, boutique? Because you talked about a little bit and stuff. So how can they find it? Website, uh, social media, all that. Yeah. So my boutique, it's perfectly flawed as well, but it's pflwd.com. So it's You didn't make it easy, did you? No, I didn't. I hyphenated (laughs) perfectly flawed into like pflawed. Yeah. So it's pflawed.com. But I mean, you can find it on my social media as well, which is Janae Perfectly Flawed. So yeah. So um, a website or anything where they can get a hold of your book? Yes, my book is at perfectlyflawedbook.com. 
And I'm available on all websites or all um, social media platforms at Janae underscore perfectly flawed. And so from there, you can find my link tree and it'll show all of my websites as well. Did you do this on like Amazon and, and those types of things as well? Or did you just keep it? It's on published? Amazon. It is on Amazon. Yeah, so okay. my book cool. is actually, if you, you can directly get through it if you go to perfectlyflawedbook.com or you could actually just go to Amazon and you can look up perfectly flawed book and you'll find my book right there and and uh did you do the audio version i haven't yet because i don't have one of these fancy microphones <laughs> <laughs> i am self-published and so i uh there's logistics that have to be worked out so i am on kindle and amazon print um, but the next step is for me to get some studio time and record the audio version. I want to do it myself because I want it to be in my voice. And so yeah. I just got to work that you out. You just have still. to let me know the next time you're in Atlanta and then we'll just, you know, turn the mic on. You you can go. I might even and then we'll do the, for that. We'll do the taco tortilla challenge <laughs> at the same time. For... <laughs> there will be a new challenge. It'll be even more embarrassing. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and I see a lot of these as like uh, as you start flipping through, which my wife got me hooked one morning on doing that and stuff, you know, and, and you see random stuff and I see like you said the same music or the same people doing the same thing but in different ways whether it's with their pet or it's a trip they took and you know i forget some of the things that come up this the music or mm -hmm. um so i can see people starting to do that and it's really interesting to me that they're um that it's out there and available and stuff i just don't know i gotta figure out a way of how we're gonna do it i it's a lot of studying you have to study like almost every day what's the trend right now how are people incorporating that into their niche because that's that's what you still want to do is you want to kind of stay towards your niche and so you got to look and say okay how can i incorporate this trend into what i do mm -hmm. you know and so that's challenge i don't do a good job at that i have not properly niched myself i am um, all over the place people don't know why they follow me <laughs> Um, but most people actually do a pretty good job at it. So if there's like a, a certain story that they're trying to tell or a certain thing they're trying to market, they're able to incorporate those trends into their own niche. And so that's, it's just a lot of studying and watching and it's tough. <laughs> What's next for Jenny? Public speaking and working with um, like homeless shelters and battered women. So we have an event coming up uh, with the brewery that I told you about back unchurned um, where we're going to be raising money for battered women. I'm going to give my first speech and I'm going to do my first in-person book signing. So that'll be August 27th in San Antonio. Okay. And what's the name of the brewery again? The brewery is called Back Unchurned. Um, okay. Grunt Style will be there. I'll be there. And we're working on getting some more um, influencers out there. But awesome. I'll, I'll be doing my first public speaking event. All right. Awesome. After this, you shouldn't have any issues. No. Like, right. You guys have trained me well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, please go out there, buy the book follow her on Absolutely. social media and uh i look forward to keeping up with you Thank and you. uh seeing how you progress and everything and i'm honored and humbled that you came here and that you shared your story because i think it really does give people hope and um it's an amazing story and congratulations for all the success and i wish you much much more thank you i appreciate it